Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Wilson, along with co-host Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. And Hugh Syme. How you doing, Hugh? I'm good. Thank you, Andrew. Awesome. Our guest today, somebody we're really excited about. We're proud to welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast, Don Barnes of 38 Special Fame. Don is the consummate musician. He is a gifted singer, songwriter, performer, guitarist, instrumentalist, and producer. After more than three decades together, 38 Special continue to bring their signature blast of rock to over 100 cities a year. Their many gold and platinum album awards stand in a testament to the endurance of a legendary powerhouse. With sales in excess of 20 million, most associate the band with their arena rock pop smash anthems. Check this list out. Hold on loosely, rockin' into the night, caught up in you, fantasy girl, if I'd been the one. Like no other night, back where you belong, chain lightning, second chance, wild-eyed southern boys, teacher, teacher, somebody like you, and so many more. That's a lot of hits. That's Makes a lot me of hits. weird also, to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> also, Don recently released, finally, which we've been listening to, Don, and it's awesome, uh, solo album, Ride the Storm, of which we're going to dig into the story behind that as well. So without further ado... Welcome to the podcast, Don Barnes. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Music hey, Buzz, live from Atlanta down here, you know. All right. Awesome. I'm glad to have you, sir. So, uh, Don, I, I got to ask you, so you're a Jacksonville native, correct? That's correct, yes. And uh, that's a town that, you know, Tom Petty is from there. I believe Don Felder, who was Tom Petty's teacher, was from that area. So it must be a... Quite a boom town for music, uh, especially back in the day. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you first got started in music and maybe your first band? Yeah, Jacksonville was in North Florida, right, right below the Georgia line. So everybody was uh, kind of. Well, I can start off. I, my dad was a music teacher, my uh, music director in Baptist Church. So we started. You know, of course, we were made to go every you know five days a week. You know, having to go through the Baptist Church programs and everything, but. You know, I got uh, the early 
uh, rumblings of the chord structures and things from church music, you know, and uh, I always liked the, the, the spiritual stuff, you know, so they kind of moved sure. me, you know, chord patterns, cycles of fists, things like that. But uh, overall, we uh, came from a area around the wrong side of the tracks, Leonard Skinner, you know, we all grew up on the, I uh, tell Donnie, we, Donnie and I, three, three of us in 38 Special grew up on the same street, Woodcrest Road. And wow. uh, there was a there was a four lane highway that that Wood, Woodcrest was a long road. And it was a four lane highway that crossed it. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Steve Brookins, the drummer in the, in the band, and I lived on one side, but we weren't allowed to go across the highway down where the band's dance lived. <laughs> I always joke <laughs> with Donnie all the time. That was uh, you know kind of shanty town over there. You know, a lot uh-huh. of thugs down that way. You know, but uh, so anyway, we just over the years, you know, we we got. Uh, the bug to you know with the with the beatles and all just everything the british invasion uh sure. played in a lot of a lot of bands a lot of teen clubs uh, birthday parties all the things any kid starts out you know you're, you're doing the church socials and hardware feed store openings and that kind of thing and you uh pick up guys along the line along the way that uh that are uh pretty proficient and you kind of pick and choose guys from other bands that maybe they fell apart you know and you find a good drummer over here or whatever. And so, uh, you know, we watched uh, Leonard Skinner, who used to be the 1%. They were called the 1%, and they were like the best band in Jacksonville. So we mm. we watched them win band, Battle of the Bands and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we all played in the cover bands of the day and learned all those. Well, first of all, let me tell you, Jacksonville was a Navy town. There's four naval bases there. And uh, – Every kid from Dwayne Allman to Greg Allman, Ronnie Van Zandt, we all played sailors clubs, you know, underage. We're 16, make a hundred bucks a week, you know, but we're playing three dog night and Santana, all the cover, the hit song, young rascals and all of the day. And, sure. uh, uh, so you you kind of through a bit of osmosis there you learn structures of songwriting you start from an early age so you're sure. you're seeing where the, the the payoff is you see it's kind of a graph you know where where you it's got a uh, the B section goes right into the chorus that really explodes and you start seeing how that graph works and keeps climbing. And uh, so then you get, you know, we do those for a few years and Skinner was uh, playing Sailor's Clubs and all that, but we were, uh, you know, you get to the point where you get a little cocky and you think, uh, well, I can write my own songs now. And that's when you go star for 10 years, you know, I'm sure you guys <laughs> have heard that whole <laughs> yeah. story. Oh, but yeah. we, watched, we watched Skinner, you know, uh, uh, grow up and, and uh, they, we, went, uh, we went to high school with, with uh, most of the guys, Alan Collins, Bob Burns, Gary Rosington. And, um, uh, I remember Alan, he was a wiry guy. He was telling me that he was, he decided one day he was going to devote his life to music. We were like, Oh man, that's the, that's a bad road. That's, you're not going <laughs> to, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and then we saw him do you know, one step forward, another step, and they got up there and got a record deal. And, uh, you know, we, and, uh, Ray Charles had been from St. Augustine. He'd gone to the school for the blind down there. So there was a few people there, uh, Slim Whitman, you know, he was from oh, wow. Middleburg, Florida. Uh, you mentioned Don Felder. He was from Gainesville. Tom Petty was down there. Uh, so everybody around there, uh, you know, played those Navy clubs. So I guess we owe, owe our career to the Navy, uh, all of us, you know. But uh, anyway, they, they started taking off. And Donnie Vans, Aunt myself, we had gone through 10 bands before, you know, it kind of filtered away, it fell apart. And uh, and I called him one day and I said, man, let's, let's, let's do it. Try it one more time. We all had day jobs and that kind of thing. So 
try it one more time. We're going to really be serious. We get the right people here to, to, to show up and, and show up for rehearsal. First of all, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a big deal in itself. <laughs> that's a tough one. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, we were hell bent on, you know, making it work and rehearsing and every night we'd all had day jobs. We'd show up at about seven thirty at night after dinner and go rehearse till one o'clock in the morning, drag your ass out of bed and, you know, in the mo- next morning, go back to the day job. So, uh, you definitely pay your dues doing that. Uh, we all would, uh, we piled in uh, an old car with bald tires and uh, went out to shipped in for gas. We, we rented a, a little sh- shanty out of North Jacksonville. That was a thing. You know, you get the cops called on you to play in somebody's garage or something. So sure. You had to find some building away from everything and you could had uh, electricity. You know? So this place, is, it was already condemned. It had electricity, no running water or anything, but you know, 50 bucks a month or something, you know, so we had to leave our equipment out there. I'm kind of rambling here going on I'm getting around to the thing, but the name of the band, but we had uh, our mattresses on the wall. We'd gone to the junkyard and nailed mattresses for soundproofing. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> we, uh, we were locked ourselves in the, the, the door. We had fortified the door, like a, a, a vault door. It was, it was a regular, it was an old hardware store is what was hardware warehouse. And uh, auto parts warehouse, and we had, by the time we were through with it, it had rebar and two by fours, and it was about a two foot, about a foot thick, you know, uh, to to uh, lock it you in. We put a had to keep the equipment out there, yeah, protect. And uh, yeah, so and we had a big uh, tractor chain going from the cinder block through the door with a big giant pad, padlock on it. And somebody, we were irresponsible. Somebody lost the key to the lock, so we used to have to uh, climb up this. Uh, uh, old drain pipe around the side and, and it looked like the, all the windows were boarded up but the, the one window was on hinges so we'd climb up there open the hinge and you know come downstairs rehearse come out that way and so we were out there about two months and, and uh i guess the word had gotten around to the cops in the area down there there must have been some wild parties going at middle of the woods north jacksonville every night and uh we were in there, sound pressure's like 120 decibels, you know, we stopped playing, we heard banging on the doors, bullhorns out there and everything, and we wanted us to come That's out, and, you know, they were trying to bust in, and uh, we yelled through the door that we didn't have the key to the lock, and we yelled to the guy, we'll have to climb out from the rain pipe, and one of the guys said something about, he was going to shoot the lock off like the old West days or something, he had a 38 special, <laughs> was going to do the talking for him, something like that, it was a, we, uh, we thought that was a funny funny story you know so we in our first uh our first gig down in jackson uh down in gainesville uh we didn't have a name for the band and we said well we'll just call it that for the time being we'll come up with something a little better later you know and we never did so that's that's (laughs) great man (laughs) some of those cops and some of the cops ended up being friends of ours they would look out and later on we built our own little rehearsal place and they would you know we're on the road they make make sure nobody's hanging out of the windows or anything you know so some of the guys yes. think they got their tickets fixed. So. <laughs> Don, now was Peter Rudge, was he your manager from the beginning or did he come on a little later? No, no, no. <clears throat> uh, now we had a couple of local guys that, you know, put the hat on and said, I'm a manager, you know, but that's, that's about as far as that went. Right. So, uh, we, we, but when you played clubs at the beginning, you'd have just have to get an agent, you know, you mm-hmm. just somebody that, uh, that had some kind of booking agency where they were booking you know, birthday clowns or whatever, if they had, you know, a little branch of it that <laughs> had bands and entertainment. Right. And this guy would send us from South Carolina. I remember we, 
we played someplace. We opened for Atlanta Rhythm Section. We thought we were big time. You mm, know, sure. we played all these bad, bad dirt floor clubs. Where we had to, one place was so nasty that we had to tell the guy that we blew an amp up and we couldn't play. And we had to, you know, we had to leave. But anyway, uh, we drove in a van from South Carolina to New Kansas, all the way across the country. And that was when I started questioning, what am I doing with my life? Right. You wake up in, in a right. sandy mattress in the back of a van looking out of Kansas, you know, mm. why am I here? So, so a lot of dues paying, but yeah, that, that, that starts yeah. out with just an agent. Okay. And uh, Ronnie had, uh, Ronnie Van Zandt had, had told him, don't make it easy on them, mm-hmm. you know, to make it as hard as they, as hard as you can. And, and we thought, why would he do that to us? Right. You know, why would, and, and in hindsight, you realize it builds character. You have to survive together. You got a support group. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, and it always, a band is like a marriage. You know, somebody gets down and says, I don't know if I can continue. And of course, the other guys are going to prop them up. Oh, man, we come on. We've something right around the corner. You know, we can keep, keep it up, you know. Sure. So we went through a lot of that. And that was, people think it was a, an overnight success, but it was, a, you know, 10 years right. of starving and going through and trying to get a record deal and all that. And I tell kids, if, you know, getting a record deal, you didn't, you don't make it. You haven't made it. You just get a chance. Dan, you probably know you, yep. you, uh, you just get a chance to play in the big leagues. If you can show it, mm-hmm. if you can produce something, then, you, or you're going to get put back in the triple A team, you know? So, right. uh, you know, so it's, uh, we, our first two albums were actually first three albums failed miserably. We were, you're talking about picking yourself up and dusting yourself off. <laughs> like what what is happening here so uh the third album we went back in the studio and cut a song called rock into the night and that was the first one that a&m records did take some attention to and it opened it cracked the door a little bit at radio we got kind of a regional hit across the country and then uh we, we knew then that, that we had to really deliver the next the next album so the, that one had hold on loosely on it while that so that was our fourth album people think that was our first one but no, you have to go suffer quite a bit, you know, a lot of that going well, on. And you, you know, that was wonderful that, you know, those days of, of allowing a band to, to grow and establish themselves and take four records to really break through. I think those days are probably yeah. long gone for anybody, of course. Oh, yeah. And, man, and, re- yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that you guys kind of changed your sound there, too, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, A&M Records was an artist-oriented company, which was good for us because they they stuck with us. Uh, You know, we were courted by Epic Records, uh, uh, Elektra, uh, Southern Rock bands at the time was the thing, kind of like the grunge era, you know, Southern Rock in the 70s. Everybody wanted their Southern Rock band, every record record company. And so uh, we... uh, you know, we finally went with A&M because they, they said, we'll stick with you. And, and uh, so then, you know, tragedy happened with the Skinner plane crash in 77. And, and that we'd already done two albums. That was something we only had a two album deal. And we thought, this is, this is it. And you're talking about changing your formula. Well, they, somebody in a boardroom somewhere didn't have the heart to drop us after Donnie had lost his brother and we had lost our mentor, hmm. you know, everything. So, they decided we'll give them one more shot. So we, we thought this was do or die. And that's when you really assess what you're having, what, what style, what's not working. Uh, you know, we did some, Donnie made the suggestion, why don't you sing a few songs? Let's try different things. So we, we got more of that, uh, you know, we, Ronnie had always told us, uh, first of all, we had kind of copied what had already come before us. We were, 
trying to be the the new uh, Leonard Skinner, Marshall Tucker, you know, outlaws or whatever. And Ronnie said, don't, don't try to be a clone of something that you've already heard. Try to put what your influences are. He was uh, four and a half years older than us. So it was like a dad to us. You know, and he said, try to find what makes your heart sing, you know, if you, whatever, whatever you came from. So we, we realized we were more melody oriented mm-hmm. Beatles invasion, British invasion, you know, and uh, like the big guitars and mountain and all that stuff. So we, we put a, we call it melody and muscle. You know, we yeah. put the style together and mm. tried to come up with something that, that people would latch onto and you could play in a bigger place and, and have some hooks and that kind of thing. So, uh, Skinner represented a lifestyle, the free bird, the biker thing, you know, everybody being out there, a bit of a, bit of an outlaw, you know, mm-hmm. but we weren't, mm-hmm. so right. we were, we were just, uh, looking at just surviving and so uh, when it's when it's do or die you try anything sure so you bring up an interesting point i was thinking about 38 special obviously going into this interview and the thing that sticks out with you guys to me is like you guys can mix with anybody you can open for you know if it's if it was a charlie daniels back in the day when he was still alive or you know you could be on a, a, a modern country uh, you know, festival, and then you guys can go and play, you know, Carb Day at yeah. the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The one year you guys played, you guys played on, this was one of the funnest bills. It was like you guys and Jane's, Jane's Addiction. Addiction. I remember. And uh, there was somebody <laughs> else on that too that was, I, I, uh, OAR. O-A- yeah, that's right. O-A-R. And it just, and it just proves that like you guys can play with like anybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, like it's 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 just an answer, and I think it's just a testament to the to the music. And I think a lot of people maybe classify you guys as southern rock, which you are, but it's not just yeah, that, it, you know, which is interesting. We always were uh, married to the hook of a song, you know. That anything that uh, moved you, we felt like if it was moved you when you're writing it, you know, uh, emotionally, whatever. It would maybe touch someone out there that they would relate to it. You, you mentioned earlier that be, being five days at, at the Baptist church and being, you know, immersed. I remember an interview with uh, McCartney and then a later interview with, <clears throat> with Elton John. They both made the comment that if you write a hymn, you've probably written a really good ballad, you know, because so many of the good ballads, chord structures, whether it's Let It Be or you know, yeah, that's Eleanor Rigby. And you can hear Elton John. It's all church hymns. They, you know, they, oh, yeah. That's mm-hmm, why sure. they call it the blues. All those songs are all, I mean, I sit in the piano and bang them out, you know. And, and yeah. uh, it's, it's just totally. pretty simple chords, but of course, the genius mm-hmm. is to both of them, you know. But uh, yeah. yeah. And he, he said in the interview that it, it was he was really influenced by the hymn, hymns of the church. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. It, so it, it, at that point, you know, when it's do or die, you're changing anything and people say, well, what do you, how did you think that caused some animosity between the two singers and Donnie and I had known each other since we were 12 years old. So, uh, it, well, I tell them as long as, as long as you win as a team, it doesn't matter, matter who carries the ball, you know? So Donnie was very supportive. He was the one suggested you try something. So he had already done two albums with all his voice on it. And, uh, he just felt like, let's 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 do let's try everything and anything anything to get going because uh i might have mentioned before um, in other in other interviews that we we actually ended up standing in unemployment line you know we had to put a hat on and glasses you know we were pretty popular in jacksonville and just the local guys we didn't want anybody to recognize us we're standing there getting our unemployment check because we had 
done a, a record up in Connecticut and had a little bit of unemployment income coming in. So uh, it was it was a dire situation. And we would hit the rock bottom. And like I said, A&M, somebody stuck with us and they they uh, they saw in us a little bit of maturity. Maybe the writing had, had happened, had, had come around a bit. And uh, mm-hmm. so there we are. The tenacity is is what got you guys through. It sounds like I tell hard people, work and yeah. desire. Right. I tell kids if you absolutely have to do this, but uh, you know if there's anything with more stability to fall back on, you know you should probably do that. You're going to sacrifice everything: weddings, anniversaries, birthdays. You're going to sacrifice everything and make it number one. Because if you don't make it number one, Dan, you know, you, somebody else That's is going right. to come, come along and make theirs yep. number one, and they're going to push you out of the picture. So That's comp- exactly right. constantly competing with everything around you. So, uh, yeah. And we always knew that, you know, they say that the old adage about, you know, you're only as good as your last hit record. So we were always and, 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 uh, cognizant of following up that last album. If it, if it sold a million records, we were... First of all, so far in debt with A&M Records, you have to recoup all that stuff. You know, you're oh, they're, they're yeah. putting the money out. And so I, I ran across this re- recently, some old papers up in the, I just moved here. And uh, there was a letter from the accountant said, congratulations on the success of Wild Eyed Southern Boys. Uh, here is the out, you know, outlay of uh, your debt to A&M Records, 760000 You still owe them. And we're, oh, oh man, we're going to have oh. to sell a bunch more millions of records to try to pay this thing. So, you know, in hindsight, my manager had told me, he said, you probably would have been better off to have them drop you and move on to another record company. Then you start at zero, you know, but we stuck right. with them because they stuck with us. And, you know, the mm-hmm. loyalty was there. So we, we, we hammered it out. That's awesome. Finally got it paid off. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Whenever you have two vocalists, there's always kind of the, the analogy of Lennon or McCartney because classically they had two, two voices. Who were you, McCartney or Lennon, in that scenario? I'd be McCartney, yeah. The more yeah, mel- sure melody, more, melody, more uh, you know, major more chords. Range. I'm sorry? More range? Yeah, more range, more melody. I, I was, uh, and some people think that they kind of, you know, criticize me, but, you know, Hey, it was do or die. You know, I had to do something, and uh, uh, I did like the I did like the melodic stuff. We we liked it, all the early stuff, the sixties, the the mm-hmm. you know Jerry and the Pacemakers. I mean, everybody from back then. You yeah. Know? So I would sing along with them in the car and everything. So yeah, so that would be, and I found that uh, what really helped, and it's what's major chord songs. You know, a lot of people play in minor chords. Right, and, uh, and I was able to hit those major notes, high stuff. You know, mm-hmm. hold on loosely is a major chord. Sure chorus. is caught up in use major chord. So I felt right. like it. It, it kind of evoked a little happiness to people. You know, they can drive yeah. along, and and it did. It makes it feels like you, it lifts you up a little bit instead of minor chords being a little bit, in my opinion, a little bit sad. You know, a little little darker. You know, so this is a little brighter. Yeah. What do you write to, despite? potential in the market what do you write more um what's your facility um melancholy and minor or always kind of upbeat and happier songs both everything you know anything that just uh comes out to to be uh you know we're all 
we're all ignorant about this thing and nobody has the answers, you know? So, mm. you know, we all have our little tape recorders and you put the little bit of an idea that might be five seconds long, you know, we'd line up, right. we'd line up these bits and we were, we were uh, contractually obligated to, you know, have something out in nine months after a long tour that you're just exhausted and you don't have any, yeah. an idea of one single note going on it. And you, you have a contractual obligation to have it out by next May or something. And so you just go to your, go to your little tape recorder and you find things that by that time you had forgotten that you'd recorded that little bit. And so you're, you're kind of playing something that you don't even remember. And you listen back. Mm -hmm. like, sure. You know, that's actually a pretty hook, hook thing. I could put a melody, but I could do this. And then, and then you develop it from there. And it's just germs. Jim Peter and I, uh, we talk about germs of ideas. They grow into something yeah. a little more infectious, you know, but it starts from just that little seed. Yeah. I was going to say Jim Peter too, man, you're, you're going to a guy who, who knows how to, to write a hit song, man, you know, he from, knows from how vehicle much. to eye of the tiger to gosh. I know I, when I first met him, he was in a little house and, uh, outside of Chicago. And, uh, wow. uh, first of all, this guy's, he knows how much I think of him. I, I learned so much from him. I, I had to go to school, you know, he had a, a vehicle was when he was 17, number yeah. one song. So, yep. I'd gone to his house and I had forgotten who I didn't know who he was really. Cause it was, we were kind of placed together by the record company. And, uh, he had a little porcelain car on his, on his coffee table. And it was like a bubble looking car. I said, what's that? He said, that's, that's my vehicle. I was given to him, you know, vehicle. Oh, vehicle. Yeah. And I, and it just caught me that, Oh yeah, that's right. I was in high school. I heard that, you know, and he goes, yeah, I was trying to copy blood, sweat and tears. You know, uh, <laughs> he said, Ides of March, yeah. Like, Ides of March, yeah. So anyway, he, he learned, he wrote this book about songwriting for dummies. And I have a little quote in there that he taught me that you, it, it, it can be anything in your mind. If you, as you, you play that radio in your head and he, that's what he's great at it. He, he can, when you're in that twilight zone where you're going to fall asleep at night, you can hear you can hear it if you allow it. Open the channels up and hear your little idea. And you think, oh, I could go that way, but wait a minute, I could snip that off and go this way. And yeah, and then you kind of put that down. So, you know, he, he's master at that stuff. He's still mm. writing every day. Uh, anyway, he's a big mentor over the years, learned a lot from him. And when That's he awesome. was, uh, he went off a survivor and they had a little problems with their group. They didn't want him to write with any outside artists. Well, at that point, it was kind of another do or, do or die situation where now we didn't have the guy who had kind of we've gone to school on. And we had to really uh, draw up our owner uh, inner resources and and come up with something that was going to be a big hit after Jim Petery. And uh, so we it was if I'd been the one. What yeah, if I'd no been kidding. One, say goodbye. That was a That's awesome. Big hit for us. Uh, sure. And he he yeah. comes up because you, you guys wrote it. He said, man, that's yeah. the best song I wish I, uh, best song I never wrote. That's what he said. <laughs> that's uh, quite a compliment. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, overall, he was, uh, he was one of these guys that you just throw it at. When I talked to him, when I first met him at his kitchen table, didn't met, didn't know him, you know, his wife Karen was there and, and we sat down and he had his little boom box. You remember those things, you know? Yep. And I said, uh, he said, well, well, you know, it's kind of an awkward thing. It's like, exposing yourself you know you don't really it's it's an insecure business anyway to have songs have bits of mm -hmm. ideas and he said well you know jeff carlisi was with me and then uh you know great great guitarist great addition to our group and he said so what do you guys got got 
you know, what do you have? And Jeff had a little riff and I said, you know, I, I was going through some bad times in my marriage. It's the first time I met it at his kitchen table. I said, you know, I just, what is it about people that they just can't seem to celebrate their differences or, you know, and, and I said, I'm going through a problem here. And I had this little title written down in a notebook. And I said, what do you think about this title? Hold on loosely. And he said, oh yeah, but don't let go. And that was the first thing that came out of his mouth. It was like a wow. you know, perfect couplet. That's and we were perfect. off to the races, you know? Yeah. And so uh, he had great melody choices. You know, I had, what's funny is uh, I, I was kind of fat, fashioning after an Elton John song. Good love and gone bad, you know? And he said that he really liked that. And we, anyway, we developed it. So first song we ever wrote was Smash. It became the anthem for the song. I'm a fan for the band, you know? Oh, yeah. Classic so, song. Yeah, yeah. And then later on, Caught Up in You, I got to tell you, Frankie Sullivan was in his group. He was the one that didn't want him to write with anyone. So we had to hide in his dad's basement. We went back <laughs> up, up there. He had, he couldn't, it couldn't be known that he was writing outside, you know, with someone. So we hammered out Caught Up in You in his dad's basement down there and just wow. lean, leaning over, banging guitars, singing into a boom box, you know. <laughs> And then we take we take our little scratch tape back to uh, Studio One, and we hammer it out, you know, make it happen. As far as any production on the song, he didn't have anything to do with that. He, we just had our little boombox tapes, and we would recreate it in a big way. You know, right? You sure That's did. awesome. So you know, we mentioned earlier Hugh's background with the the graphic design stuff and having done so many record covers and stuff. So Hugh's got going to dive into some questions we have in that department. Sure. Well, before you do, Hugh, can I just say quickly that the, the cover for Wild-Eyed Southern Boys, I, I was looking at that again yesterday, and I'm still thinking, you know, all, all the guys in the picture look real happy, and I can see why I look real happy looking at uh, what I got to see there <laughs> from, from my point of view. But, yeah, yeah, that's, that was always an eye-catcher there, by Yeah, golly. the girl, the hot pants, yeah. <laughs> Which she, one she was, was that? I the girl in the hot pants, you know, the yeah. little bitty shorts. I thought that was um, Special Forces. No, that was, well, that was, she She reappeared in that, uh, yeah, in that, that phase God there. God bless her. Yeah. <laughs> her ass was like a, 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 a um, uh, I would say, a brand <laughs> motif. Yeah, it became that. Yeah. Uh, that was the yeah. artist. What's funny is that was the artist's daughter. <laughs> oh, really? He had her model for it, yeah. Uh, well, I... I, I confess to, I mean, I, I certainly know your music. Um, did I collect it? No, I was way more into other kinds of music. Sure. Um, but as I dig back through your archive and look at, you know, particularly when I saw Special Delivery, the red car, I thought, well, that's Neon Park. Yeah. And then I realized that's everything that Little Feet ever had. And then Weasels, yeah. I knew he did Weasels Rip My Flesh. And I thought, well, this is a band that cares about their imagery, you know. Did Neon, was that Neon's daughter or was that pre-Neon? No, no, that, that, that uh, I forget the name. His name escapes me. Wild Eyes Southern Boys album, but, but that, was the, that was his daughter. I remember he had her, had her model. Uh, but, yeah. Over I've used my daughter as a model. Yeah, twice. Yeah. I have a, I did a cover for um, Megadeth and the fourth baby from the left hanging from the clothesline is my daughter. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is a line. The fourth baby from the left. <laughs> Hanging from the close line. That is definitely a line. You need to write that down, Don. <laughs> I need to go look at that. Hugh, when, when, you, when, when you presented that, these covers to bands, uh, did, did they 
did they like it right away or they just didn't well, really? I learned that the I learned the rhythm. I mean, this is your interview, but I'll tell you a, a quick story about that. It's the band Megadeth, and they they had the title Euthanasia, which is technically mercy killing, but they spelled they spelled it Y O U T H. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it, it became kind of more of a gag. Yeah. And I went into the meeting with three other concepts, which I knew weren't as strong. And honestly, for about 10 years, I had the idea of hanging babies from a clothesline with this sweet old lady just hanging. them. <laughs> it, it was just one of those. It's like, it's like song ideas. It's scraps. Yeah. You know, yeah, sure. you call them, yeah. ger you call them germs. This was one of my, yeah. tell me where the, the graphic um, drive came from. Usually there's a band member who has that keen interest in representing the band yeah. a certain way. Uh, Rockin' Through the Night album was the uh, lips with the big lipstick, if you yeah. remember. So, yeah, that was mm -hmm. Jeff Carlisi had, had modeled his wife. He was a photographer, so he liked those kind of, you know, esoteric looks. And uh, he, he had macro photos of his wife holding that lipstick. And uh, then the A&M, the art department, you know, developed it. So. Yeah, he was always, I got a good eye for that kind of thing. Uh, the uh, Strength in Numbers album, it was, you know, with three and eight, you had all the shapes. They had the horseshoe, three, two, three, uh, two horseshoes on three and then four on the eight. Right. And uh, again, that artist escapes me, but uh, I, I didn't like it. I didn't think it looked uh, rock and roll enough. You know, I, it looked a little just, uh, I don't know, in New York or something. It's just the shapes. And, mm -hmm. and he said, well, we can put, your face is behind the shapes looking through the window. And that was going to be costly to have a cover. But I thought, man, that, that's just, those six shapes just didn't move me at all. So you can, on the eight, it really didn't look like an eight. Can you move some of those shapes, make them a little longer to look like an eight? And he, had, he pretty much was insulting. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're, it, the, whole, the whole concept is using six shapes to make, to make three mm -hmm. and eight. So I walked away and said, do whatever you need to do. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that, and how's that? You threw how the towel in. Did very well. Yeah. So the, the windows uh, uh, idea was a great idea because people, it was, you know, it was a slip uh, cover, slipped inside of a cover. So you had cutouts. So you know how that's more expensive when you. Oh, like physical graffiti. Sort yeah, of like so physical actually, graffiti. So it was our faces yeah. looking through those shapes. What It did help, you know, but. Uh, Ride the Storm is a, a, I mean, I'm just, I, I saw the, the cover and I thought, well, that's, that's something I would have thought of in terms of just approaching mm -hmm. what you had done with that. It's a very effective cover. How do you, how do you anticipate marketing this project? Will this be, have a, a, a video for YouTube? Will you be approaching it with the kind of current well, it tool? Was, it was released by Melodic Rock Records, Andrew, Andrew McNeese. He was the, he owned that and uh, I just recently have been contacted that he sold the company to another uh, investment group and they want to re-release it with video to answer your question. Yeah. They want to put a video together and uh, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. That album was my, uh, I was a young man with a lot of, you know, uh, I've had, I had to prove myself, you know, and I was out there, A&M had offered me a solo album deal and I said, you know, I left, I left the group after so, so many years and, uh, uh, it was do or die for me. And I, I tried to gather all the songs I could and wrote with Martin Briley, uh, English uh, writer. I want to get more of a British, you know, style in there. Uh, but anyway, I, I ride the storm was about really about me and my career. Uh, at the time I needed to prove myself. And I'm going to ride the storm. I'm going to prove it all to them. So most people think it's relationship or something, but, uh, anyway, it's, it's good. 
good collection of songs that pretty much goes around the, I, the whole I understand thing. that that has some age to it you you brought it yeah. forward like 30 years did i hear 28 years yeah the uh yeah. record company a and m offered me the deal they went and paid a lot of money for this album to be recorded and, and i got uh, the chance to they said pick anybody any musicians you'd like to play with and uh, jeff vaccaro and mike vaccaro from toto i thought they were just you know powerhouse Fantastic. rhythm section oh yeah uh, wow. a lot of uh, dan huff who's a titan in the industry now he was a guitarist uh, came in anyway had a great time we slammed these songs out and and a and m we paid for mixing and remixing and you know the packaging and the time and mastering uh, not packaging but uh and then uh, I get a call from my manager one day and it said that uh, Polygram has bought A&M Records for like a billion dollars. So, mm. so any, it was 1990. So anybody who had, uh, had a, uh, an album, the project, it was all shelved. Janet Jackson, there was several, a, several A&M artists had, had uh, uh, you know, had their sh project shelved. And so right. at that time I said, well, we can just sell the masters. We can buy the masters and you know, go to another record company. A&M became, you know, Polygram, who didn't, they're all about acquisitions. They didn't want, they didn't want to sell any of their property. So they held on to it. I guess they were going to release it posthumously or something. But, uh, we couldn't get them to sell it. So it just sat there. Wow. And uh, several times people wanted to release it. And so finally, uh, Andrew McNeese from Australia he said, well, it, it, we, it became an import. So we, he said, uh, I know several people at Universal Music, which now owned A&M after all these years. They did a search right. on him. And they searched like three times. And they said, he's really bothering him with the search for the tapes, the masters. Well, they found out later they had the big fire out there. All the A&M, oh. all the A&M project, uh, even our, our 38 records, the Wild Southern Boys, all that stuff that was, you know, wow. double platinum, all burned up. They're gone. Oh. You can't use masters the compilation. So wow. we... Uh, I said, uh, well, what, what better way to, re to re release an album? I've got a two-track tape out of the basement. It's all mixed and mastered. And we put it out without their permission because what are they going to do? You know, they burned mm -hmm. our masters, so we're, we're releasing this thing. Right. Heck with them. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. Right. Well, so that was a period when you made that record. Like, you were gone from uh, 38 Special for almost five years. <clears throat> Four and a half years. Um, yeah. So what made you decide to, to go back? Uh, they asked me. They had uh, okay. they had gotten uh, a guy, Max Carl, great singer. He, he did Second Chance, his song Second Chance. It was ubiquitous out there on radio, across the formats and everything. Uh, it wasn't my style. It was a little more, you know, it was a ballad, slow ballad. And sometimes uh, you can ask Mick Jones and Foreigner, you start putting ballads out, you're going to lose your rock fan base, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when they did that, it kind of spiraled down. People said, Oh, that's it. They're over. It's over with. And he's not there anymore. But anyway, four, four and a half years later, they had really spiraled down quite a bit and they called and asked, come back and resurrect the whole thing. We'll go out rocking. And so we, I got back in and uh, it was, there was my, my place on stage and the mics and, you know, brought that sound back and, uh, Max had left and gone gone with Grand Funk Railroad. He's he's with him with them today. Yeah. Singing. Well, that's what they wanted to hear. Was they wanted to hear the the sound that people you know were used to. So talking about uh, the live experience a little bit, and I've seen many a thirty eight special show um, as a fan, but also as just work wise um, over the years. But what was your personal first attended concert that you went to as a fan, Don? Growing up. 
oh, as a kid, uh, let's see. Uh, well, I saw Hendrix in Jacksonville Coliseum. Mm-hmm. A few first Dave Clark five, you know, uh, Beach Boys. But Hendrix had was on the he was opening for the Monkees. Wow. You know the story. Oh, wow, you saw that. That's yeah, awesome. he, was, he was opening for the Monkees. Uh, he had he had been open. Sorry, he had he had, he had opened for the Monkees in Jacksonville. They booed him. And so when I saw him was when he was headlining, but they, they had just come off that monkey store. My sisters went to uh, the monkey show, my two step stepsisters, and they came back and said, ooh, and there was this guy, this black guy that came out, Jimmy something, but we were waiting for you know Mickey Dolans and all, and I was thinking, I don't know who Jimmy <laughs> Hendrix is. So Talk anyway, about a mismatch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, he came out in the Coliseum in, in Jacksonville. First thing, you know, everybody cheered. He came out. And he goes, yeah, it's nice to be back here in Chicago. You know, and he kind of given a rip to Jacksonville, and he said, "If you're gonna, if you're gonna boo this time, at least boo on key." <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, nice. that's great. That's and then he starts out with with fire, bow, 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 da, 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 you know. That's great. I never met anybody actually who, or never encountered anybody who had seen um, the Dave Park Five. So that's impressive. Oh yeah, glad all over. Yeah, they were, they were yeah. Glad, yeah, yeah. A young rascals actually did a show with uh, Felix recently a personal appearance we some of us singers you know we'll get do these corporate personal appearances where you go out and do your four or five hits and then you have a glass of wine and watch the other guy work you know so we all made friends and so felix of course he's an icon i mean i, I had to tell my brother we had his his all the records and young rascals in the in the den there you know and and uh, staring at the pictures and everything here i am and so he was supposed to close and I told my brother, there's the guy that as many times that we had listened to rock to those records and everything. And he was supposed to close and he didn't want to follow Don Barnes. And I said, isn't that, I told my brother, isn't that funny? They didn't want to follow me. And I was like, here's the guy who was an icon. So I brought him a lot of old pictures from my, my friend, Carl Dunn. He's a, he's a famous photographer, did rock photographer over the years, got big coffee table books and things. He gave me a big collection of old rascal photos and I, I brought mm-hmm. them from Felix. But uh, that's awesome. Carl, speaking of, you know, Hendrix and all that, he gave me a couple of uh, CDs of Jeff Beck group. First time in America, Hendrix first time. And I, and I said, what? He said, he gave them to me. I said, what would you, where'd you get these? You got eBay or something? He said, no, I recorded them myself. He said, I mm-hmm. <laughs> went to the, took my reel to reel back then. There was no, there was no, yeah, you they know, didn't stop rules. You. He said, I just set it up in the back, a couple of mics and, it sounds great too, you know. Jeff Beck with Rod Stewart, all you know, wow. it's crazy. Oh wow! Yeah, I recorded wow. myself. You know? Yeah, that's great. Tell us about some of your classic live stories of Thirty Eight Special playing with different bands. You know, what what are the big shows or tours that you've been a part of that really stick out in your mind from your career? Uh, we opened for Kiss in the seventies. That was the biggest year. They, I don't think they made like four hundred million or something. But they're huge. Uh, wow! Uh, Alba, huge uh, year for them. And we were the opening act. We were this little Southern rock band out there opening their, their, their crowd, you know. And there's so many stories about that. I mean, I, I'd go backstage and you'd pass a room, a dressing room with a, with a door open. And there's Gene Simmons up on a like four foot pedestal. He's got all these assistants snapping his dragon boots and the wings and the makeup. Jeez. And he looked at me and kind of <laughs> put sh- just shoulders up like, can you believe I have to go through this? Every day? <laughs> so, but, but they had a, uh, they would have a kiss, kiss face contest. <laughs> yeah. And a kiss face contest. Every, all the radio stations was they show up with your favorite character, grease paint and all that. And so the kids would, you know, put, you know, the lizard face or whatever, Paul Stanley, the star and all that. 
And we'd go out and open it, and it would be the first 80 rows of nothing but kiss face contact. <laughs> face oh, that's great. <laughs> Makes you feel nice and welcome, right? <laughs> Twilight yeah, Zone, yeah, yeah. Which begs the question, what on earth would have uh, uh, possessed them to do an album without makeup for revenge? Oh, I know. I know. They look better <laughs> with the makeup. I know. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. But back then, they wouldn't allow anyone in their sound checks in the afternoon because they were there without makeup, and we weren't allowed to even see them. Yeah, it was like Clark Kent Superman thing. Sure. You couldn't see these yeah. guys in their disguise, you know, without their disguise. But yeah, they'd be, uh, we'd hear them outside the door. We were, weren't allowed to go in the building. They had security all right. around the building. And you could hear Paul going, Am I ready to rock? He's just doing that in a mic in an open hall, you know, empty hall. Right. Wow. So, well, I had the had the privilege and misfortune of being the art director on that cover because Oh, is that right? Gene pulled me in and said, we're, we're we're growing up now. We we think it's time to uh to do a cover with, with us on the cover. And I didn't think really I didn't think one way or the other. I thought, well, that's my gig. I'll just make it happen. And looking back, I'm thinking that was an you know, an Ill, Ill, uh, ill-conceived concept. Well, it was his idea, not yours, Hugh. So. <laughs> there you go, yeah. You can blame him. As were most of their ideas, yeah. But, but yeah. It, it started a nice friendship with Gene, though, so it was nice. Yeah, we did a lot of, did about six months of that tour, and I, you know, I got to know where all the big bombs and explosions went off, <laughs> and we would out, be out in the crowd, and I would, I knew it was coming up, the big flamethrowers or whatever, and I would turn around, and I'd just stare at the, the, packed arena wow. and they're all sitting there and those bombs will go I was amazing to watch people just duck oh, and, you man. know when the thing happened huge bombs <laughs> going off mm. these guys had concussion bombs there was a lot of the, the flash bombs on the stage but underneath the stage there were their big oil cans full of gunpowder with duct tape over the top and they would just hit the switch and blow those they were almost like, like you could feel the concussion out in the crowd wow. from those wow. things going off. Uh, there's a funny story about the the pyro guy, he uh, he was head of the pyro. All the all the bottom, I mean, literally had strung out uh, uh, wires across the arena where all these things would pop and sparks and everything. Anyway, this guy uh, he got tired of the road and he and he got a, a regular job and it was <laughs> he went back home and he was driving a he worked for a dairy driving a milk delivery truck and they had uh, they had the Democratic National Convention in the in the Omni in Atlanta. And this guy was delivering milk backstage to the thing. Well, they pulled him inside and they wanted to know why the milk driver had a pyrotechnic license in every, every state of the country. <laughs> I thought he was a bomb expert, you know? Right. right. <laughs> we thought that was hilarious. Yeah. That's great. Is there anybody that you haven't played shows with that you would love to? Like, who would be your dream to, to do a show with? Uh, probably clapped. And I never, I never met him. I always wanted to be him as a kid. I had posters all over my bedroom and everything, but I, I'd slow the records down and learn his solos and just like every kid back then. But he was the idol. He had, he had the class, the dignity played with such smooth style that, uh, you know, uh, he was just the God to me, you know? So I never got to meet him. I, I've got a couple of guys that work on his tour. And I said, man, you gotta at least let me hook you up. Shake, shake his yeah. hand. My, my son, one of my sons is Jason Eric. His middle name's Eric, and, uh, yeah. named after him. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, of course, the, didn't didn't play with Zeppelin. Didn't get a chance to do that. Saw Zeppelin. Went to the Coliseum there for, for six dollars. Ticket mm. for six dollars. Wow. Amazing. And uh, I remember I was about a hundred feet out from Jimmy Page, and you know, as a kid, just burning desire. You want to do that? And sure. I, 
playing in young bands. And it's like, there's Jim, 100 feet from me. There's Jimmy Page, one of the top guys. How can I cross that 100 feet? I want to be up there doing that, yeah. you know. So That's it great. took a long time. But, yeah, so this kid with a grave, you know. Yeah. Yeah. A quick Eric Clapton story that I have. Um, one time I was with Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. And um, at the end oh, of the yeah. day, we'd done a bunch of media stuff. And at the end of the day, um, I was letting him off. And um, he handed me a business card and uh, had his contact information on one side. I turned it over. And the other side, it said, friend of Eric Clapton. And I said, Billy, why do you, oh, really? have, why do you have this on the other side of your business card? <laughs> friend of card? Eric Clapton? Yeah. I said, why do you have this on your business card, Billy? He said, if you were friends with Eric Clapton, wouldn't you want everybody to know it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Billy's a sweetheart. <laughs> we we played a lot of shows with those guys. Yep. Easy top. But, you know, we loved, we learned a lot from the fact that they, they go into character, you know, they're out there on stage and, and you have to kind of be that, uh, that guy, you know, because he's, so mild mannered, you know. He's back backstage. He was just a nice guy. He's like, "Hey, Don, how you doing?" And then he's out there, how, how, you know. And I remember we, we they had another. We had been on many tours through the years with them, but remember the African stuff, the all the the straw huts. They came out of right. that little shell, and I went up there before they went on and went into his little shell there. You just had a little peered window there. You could see, and it had a little. Uh, little strip of uh, lettering he had stuck on there and said, let's get into character. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Let's get into character. Yeah. Let's get into character. I, I worked with Alice Cooper in the same kind of thing. You know, he wanted to talk about golf and he was just so unassuming and such a lovely guy, but obviously a, a far cry from his stage persona. Yeah, we've done some cruises. That guy's a nice guy. Just, just, uh, we, we did a lot of these cruise, rock cruises, you know, and he brought the boa out and did the whole thing. I don't know how they got that on the ship, but, you know, did a great job. All these, uh, let's see, who else? We, we, uh, we had, uh, we played the Meadowland. Bon Jovi used to open for us. They, they were, uh, this is when they were young oh, wow. guys. They had ac actually, Slippery when, when Wet was, had just come out. And they were, we were the last band they opened for, and we did about three months together. Got to know them. We had great kids. They were, we were older than they were. We, we were older than everybody. By the time we got anywhere, we were weary, and we were, <laughs> we'd grown some years. You know? But uh, they, uh, we played. Uh, I remember that John was, we came in the afternoon for a sound check. And back then, there was no cell phones or anything. A pay phone was backstage, and he was, uh, he was leaning against the booth there. And he was going, really? All right. Oh, great, great. And he hung the phone up, and I was the only one standing there. I said, "What? What is it?" And he goes, "Our album just went to number one, and it was great." I gave him a big hug. Congratulations! Well, that's great. You got to be happy that's for awesome. anybody getting anything good in this business. Sure. You know? But uh, you know, we played the Meadowlands. Uh, we we had done. Uh, we'd been up the Meadowlands several times, opening, and we wanted to headline. And, uh, we, you know, you got the handlers and accountants and managers saying, no, you don't want to get 24,000 people. You don't want to go in there and embarrass yourself and not get, you know, get filled, fill the house. So we said, uh, you know, we, we were cocky about it. We felt confident. We'd been up in the Northeast quite a bit. And, uh, and we said, no, we think we can do this. We can think we can bring them out. And they said, well, it's your funeral, you know, go ahead and try it. So we went out there and buddy. 24,000 people came and sold that place out. It was great. Wow, that's awesome. We proved Beautiful. them all that's wrong, great. you know. That's great. Beautiful. Wow. Thank you so much, Don, for your time. Hey, we thank certainly you, appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And 
you know, hey, if you ever need a drummer, fun. you know, you got you can get a hold of Dane and. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have two. Yeah, I used to have two. Yeah, I know that's. I was going to yeah. ask you about that. Drummer, so yeah. I saw you guys here in my hometown, which is Anderson, Indiana. You played yeah. at the casino, Hoosier Park, and I was thinking that it was about five or six years ago. And then I actually looked it up online yesterday, and oh, it was two thousand and nine. Uh, oh, yeah. So it's, it's been a while, now. but I wanted to say you guys were fantastic. Donnie was still in the band. Yeah. Uh, and uh but you only had one drummer yeah gary moff but he's a he's a monster drummer he's one of he the top really guys great. down south and he he, he had kind of hit the ceiling you know he played all the local clubs and all that but he was ready for to get national and we pulled him up and, uh, but I, all the guys in the band i mean i have great memories we're all still friends the original guys we we yeah. uh, uh jack grondon was the uh kind of the lead drummer steve brookins was the second drummer but uh, he he was the wildest guy in the band. He was you know anything and all things. He was a good looking guy. He was out there, and but like I said, anything and all things. This guy today is traveling the world as an evangelist minister. Oh, <laughs> wow. like really? He finally found. He was always in search of something. You know, we we're happy for him. He just finished building a, a an orphanage in the Philippines for orphan oh, boys. God bless him. Man, wow. Wow. a lot lot prettier work than we we're doing. You know, but. Steve Brookings, the other guy, went into the travel part of the the, the fleet trucks and buses and that part of the industry. Uh, Jeff Carlisi uh, has the thing called Camp Jam for kids. They bring in a lot of artists and teach, put kids together, and it's good camaraderie and group, you know, group uh, uh, social social uh, uh, socializing. And uh, right. nice. Who else was it? LJ? He sadly passed away last year. He was the uh, he was with us all through the years. And uh, but uh, he ended up yeah, getting Parkinson's, you know. It's just, it mm. got bad, but uh, but we we all missed him. And uh, anyway, we we all we all want to have a barbecue one day and have everybody show up and you know reminisce. So. That's sure. great so, that you can all still be friends. Yeah. yeah, that's right. We're still out there. We're doing a hundred cities a year. Of course, not this year, but we've been doing basically a hundred cities. And uh, we've, we've got a great group of ringers out there. We just recreate that history, unfold it to people, and just knock them down. Take them for a ride. That's a lot of, a lot of groups will go out there and go, and our next song is this. Thank you very much. And this song is the next one. Thank you. you know. and, but they need a director. They need to realize you got to take that crowd for a ride and lock them all together with medleys sure. and just take them higher and higher until it's explosive yeah. finish. And everybody feels like they got everything worth their ticket, you know. So, of course, that's what we're we're all about that bringing that happiness and joy to people. It's a good job, you know. You know, it just occurred yeah. to me actually, Dane, your band is is supposed to open for for Thirty Eight Special, <laughs> yeah, Brown County. We are and in Wabash. That's Indiana. right. Yeah, are we, are two we times next, next year. year. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Yeah. So there you go. That's excellent. Well, come yes. come back and say hello, and we'll hang well, out. I sure will. A beer I sure will. Yeah. Great. Good luck to you, Dan. I wish you all the best. <laughs> Thank you, Don. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks a lot for your time. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks for joining the Music Buzz podcast. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Yep. Thank We're closing you. the show with a live version of Hold On Loosely. Thanks again, Don. Have a good one. All right. Thank you now. Too late.
so damn easy when your feelings are such to overprotect her and love her too much.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.